Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Ben as he teaches from the Gospel of John in our Eternal Word series. And so I've titled the message this morning, Anchors for the Soul. Anchors for the Soul. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that your word is life. Your word is truth. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today through your word. Lord, when, when your word is read, when, when your word speaks, Lord, we know that you speak. And I pray that your people would submit to your word and that you would minister to them through your word, that you would sanctify them through your word because your word is truth. And I pray this morning that you would help me to open my mouth to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So famous last words. Last words. Last words are important. What you say at the end of your life is important. What you say throughout your life is important, but we we like to think about famous last words. There are a few people I think of. I, I looked up some famous last words. Frank Sinatra. Now this is all hearsay, you know, this is what is said about these people that they said when they died. But Frank Sinatra, before he died, his last words were, I'm losing. I'm losing. Apparently that's what he said. Uh, Nostradamus apparently said, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. So he was a prophet and he predicted that the next day that he would no longer be here. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, he said this apparently, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. So he apparently did a lot like the Mona Lisa and thought that it was not what it should have been. So last words, final words. And, and you know, these are not the final words that Jesus is going to have with his disciples. How many of you know his final words to his disciples after the resurrection? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation, every tribe, teaching them all that I have commanded you, right? The great commandment, the great commission. But, but these are the last words of Jesus before he, is, before he is betrayed and arrested and crucified. So these are his last words before his death. And these words that Jesus is speaking, we've been in, in a series of his last words in what, what people call the upper room discourse or, or the upper room conversation. I, I kind of see it as it's almost like the final sermon that Jesus is giving to his disciples before he is arrested and before things get really difficult. After, after these words are completed and, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, uh, uh, Judas is going to come and, and Judas is going to betray Jesus and he'll be arrested and it's going to fling these disciples into panic. It's going to fling them into despair and and Jesus, in some way, is trying to use these words to prepare them for what is to come, not only after his arrest and crucifixion, but after his resurrection, because certainly we know that the church entered, the first church entered into great persecution because of their belief in him. And so this is what these last words are about. Final words, that they tend to be important. Like if you if you had a family member or a loved one and, and you knew when you were going to die, you had the opportunity, you knew you were about to die, but you also, you also knew perfectly the future. You knew the, the future perfectly. You knew what was going to happen. This is Jesus. He knew what was going to happen because he knows all things. But if you had that opportunity, what would you say to people? What would be most important for those that you loved? And Jesus loved these. These were his disciples. These were his sons. These were his beloved children. 
So this is what Jesus says. These are his concluding words in the upper room discourse. Let's look at our text, John 16. What does Jesus say in these final moments before things get hard? Before things get hard, what are the anchors for the soul of the disciples? Let's look at his words, starting at verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and I have believed that I, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and we have come into the world, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and, using, and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's God's word. Boy, what are we going to get out of this? How, how, how are we going to squeeze this text? I, I like to think of it that way. I'm squeezing the text. There's so much goodness in there. Like you squeeze an orange and you get all this beautiful vitamin C and juice. And we, we got to squeeze this. We got we to dig into it. We got to mine the jewels of this text. So many great jewels in here. And I see this as a conclusion of Jesus' sermon, his illustrative sermon, right? He, he goes and he talks about abiding in the vine. We saw that in John 15. And I believe he, he's giving the disciples right here in the conclusion of his sermon three anchor points for the tests that are about to come. Three anchors for their soul because the tests are about to come. So let's look at the three anchors for the soul when life brings test and temptation. The first anchor is this. Did you notice what Jesus said? The first one is this. The Father loves you. The Father loves you. You see that in the text. Look back. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. We will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you ask in my name. And listen, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. So Jesus had been speaking in figures of speech. He'd been speaking in, 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 in figures of speech. And a figure of speech is a form of expression that uses words other than in a plain or a literal way. So you've heard of figures of speech. You could say that uh, figures of speech would be hyperbole, metaphor, simile, paradox, personification. But, but needless to say, in any, in any sense, the disciples don't feel like Jesus is speaking plainly. And he's hard to understand. Uh, you remember Jesus spoke in parables. He was speaking in parables. And, and Jesus uh, was asked by the disciples one time, why, why, why do you speak in parables? We don't understand. And Jesus would have to explain the parable to them. But he spoke in parables because uh, of those who were hard-hearted. It was, a, it was a sign of judgment on those that were unbelieving. And so Jesus says, in essence, here's what he's saying. The day is coming when I will no longer do this. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's not going to be confusing. What, what, what he's really saying is the day's going to come when the aha moment's going to hit you and you're going to understand. And what Jesus is ultimately pointing to here is the coming of the Holy Spirit. What we've seen in chapter 14 and 15 of John. 
the aha moment's going to come when the Spirit of God's going to come, the Holy Spirit's going to come. On the day of Pentecost, he's speaking forward. The, the, the day's going to come when it will be clear to them when the Spirit will fill the disciples and they will have the words of God illuminated to them. They will understand now. They're, the dots will be connected. Have you ever had uh, something happen or you're communicating with somebody and you just can't connect the dots? And you're like, I'm just so confused. I need some clarification. That's how these disciples felt. But the moment's going to come. He said, it's going to come when you're going to understand. No more riddles. No more confusion. The aha moment. But notice what Jesus says next. In that day, that day whenever things aren't confusing anymore and you're starting to understand, you're starting to figure out, okay, I get that now, why you said you were going away. I understand that now. I understand what you meant by you coming back. You rose from the dead. I understand you're coming again. But notice what he says, in that day you will ask in my name and I won't go to the Father on your behalf. <laughs> this is really interesting. He says, you're going to ask in my name, but he says, I'm not going to go to the Father for you. You could have been like, what, why, why Jesus? That's confusing. Why will you not go to the Father for us? Why? Here, Jesus gives the answer. For the Father loves you because you love me. What is Jesus saying here? What's he getting at? He's saying the time's going to come when you're going to understand. You're going to see. You're going to know what I've been saying all along. And the Spirit's going to live within you. And, and, and the light bulb's going to go off. And, and when you pray in my name, I'm not going to go to the Father for you because the Father loves you because you believe in me. What is he saying here? Here's what I think he's saying. Because you love me, you will have direct access to the Father. Because you love me, you will have direct access to the Father. You can go to the Father. The Father himself loves you. You, don't, you, 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 you can pray in my name, but, but you have direct access to the Father. Jesus is pointing forward here to the open access that he is about to make to the Father for those who love him. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? We have open access to God, to the Father, through the work of the cross. We who believe now have direct access to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. That's good news, my brothers and sisters. I love what Matt Carter, Pastor Matt Carter says about this. He says, because of their faith in Jesus and their love for him, they now experience the love of God. Jesus opened the way to relationship with the Father. The love of the Father. The love of of the Father. You know, that, that, this would have been really earth-shattering um, for the disciples to hear. These were observant Jews. You know, for observant Jews, uh, the, the, the name of God is Yahweh. When you look in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh. And they honored the holiness of God so much, they would not, they would not even spell out the full name Yahweh. They would, they would leave off the, uh, they leave off the, the A and the E, and, and they would spell it, they would abbreviate Y. H-W-H. And so for them, the idea of God the Father was the reality of His holiness and that only the priest could go into the presence of God to atone for the sins of the nation. And, 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 and for Jews, the Father is far off. He is away. He is not somebody that we can come near to. You have to be separate and set apart. And Jesus, when He's saying that the Father Himself loves you and that you can go to the Father in My name, this is earth-shattering for these disciples. But it's what we see in the Scripture, don't we? You remember earlier in the, in the Gospels, uh, you, you see it, we call it the Lord's Prayer, whenever the disciples said, Jesus, can you teach us to pray? Teach us to pray. 
And what is the first thing Jesus says when he says, giving them a model of prayer? He says, our Father, our Father. That, that would have blown their mind. God, our Father, our Father. Jesus was teaching something radical for these disciples to understand. That through Christ, we have direct access to the Father. Listen, we don't need, what he's teaching is this, we don't need a Father to get to the Father. Did you follow that? We don't need a Father to get to the Father. We can go directly to God. Hebrews 10 tells us this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, how do we have confidence to enter the holy places? By the blood of Jesus. What would happen for the atonement of sins? Who would enter into the holy place? The priest. Once a year for the atonement of sins, and they would tie around the ankle of the priest a rope, and at the end of the rope were some, were some bells, and if there was sin in that priest's life, and he went into the Holy of Holies, he would die, and whenever they would stop hearing the bells, they would know, okay, that guy didn't make it. They'd be able to pull him out. Because you couldn't enter the Holy of Holies unless you were sanctified and set apart for that task. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And this is what Jesus is alluding to right here in his final words to his disciples. The hour is coming when because you love me, you can go to the Father because the Father loves you. You have direct access. Listen, that is so powerful. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, we have confidence to enter the holy places. Why? By the blood of of Jesus, by the new and the living way, by the new and the living way. That, how do we have this new and living way? Look what it says, that he opened for us through the curtain, the curtain that separated man from God's presence in the Holy of Holies. You remember when Jesus was crucified, what happened to the curtain in the Holy of Holies? It was torn from where? From top to bottom, signifying that God is the only one who can open up access and God opened up his access. God opened up access through his son, Jesus. He opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. We have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with the true heart, the full assurance of faith. Amen? This is powerful. It, it, it is just amazing to consider. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples, again, they don't have the aha moment yet. He's speaking to something that they're going to experience. But for us, we're on the other side of the resurrection. For us, I think we take for granted the access we have to God. We take for granted the access we have to God. We, we don't have to ask for permission to interrupt a meeting. You know, think about heaven. A lot of important things going on in heaven, right? We don't have to, we don't have to make an appointment with the Father God and say, hey, when you have time, can, I pencil, can you pencil me in for a moment? of time so I can cast my cares over onto you. No, no, we can come with confidence because we are children of God. We don't have, to, we can barge right into the office, can we not? We can barge right into the throne room of heaven and bring our petitions to our Father, not because of anything that we've done, but completely because of what Christ has done. Direct access, confidence reminds me of the most powerful desk in all the world. Do you know the most powerful desk is in all the world. Do you know? Somebody's got to know the most powerful desk in all the world. You can talk back to me. The Resolute Desk. Hey Amen. That is the most powerful desk in all of the world. Why? Because the President of the United States sits at that desk. And the most powerful man in all of the world is the President of the United States. And so the Resolute Desk, the Resolute Desk is the most powerful desk. 
So the office of the president is super important, right? You, you got to make appointments. You got you to you get in on the agenda. You can't just barge in to the office of the president of the United States and, and have a meeting with him without making an appointment first, right? But you know there are people that have direct access to the president of the United States. His children do, right? Well, this is one of the most famous pictures. You can look up on the screen. The most powerful desk in all the world. JFK sat at that desk. On October 15, 1963, at the age of two, John F. Kennedy Jr. played under the desk of the most powerful man on the planet. Isn't that awesome? That's what I thought of whenever I was trying to think about a way to illustrate this point of direct access. As in, it, right away, I thought about that, the JFK picture. JFK Jr. under that desk. You think JFK Jr. felt like he had to make an appointment? Not. He could barge in. He could come in. He could cry. And John, John, John Kennedy, JFK, he would give him his attention. Why? Why? Not, not because of anything that John Jr. had ever done, but simply because of his identity. Simply because of his name. Simply because of his name. And you know what the Bible says about us? That we've been given a new name. The Bible says about us that we are new creations in Christ because we love Christ, because we are following Christ. As believers, we have a new identity, we have a new nature, and so because of that, we can go to the most powerful God, the only God, the true God. And we can come with all of our needs, all of our requests, all of our situations, all of our burdens. And Jesus is telling his disciples in that day, the day's coming soon, and you will be able to access the Father directly because of me. Because you love me. My Father loves you. You won't have to wait till Sunday. You won't have to depend on anyone else to do it for you. Because you love me. You're a child of God. You belong to the Father. And the Father loves you. So i got a couple of questions for you. Do you know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are a child of the Father through faith in Jesus? Do you know that you are a child of God? through faith in Jesus, that He is your Father. He is your Father. You know, sometimes I think we, we get this idea of the Father and God and us as earthly fathers. We get it kind of all mixed up a, a little bit. And we look through the lens of our earthly fathers to try to, to understand our heavenly Father, but really that's not how it's supposed to be seen. Our role as earthly fathers are, are meant to be seen through the lens of the perfect Father, our heavenly Father. And so, so, so if, you, if you've had an earthly father that has disappointed you, that has let you down, that has abandoned you, that has abused you if, you, if you have that lens, you're looking through the wrong lens to see God. You must see God as your perfect father, the one that will never fail you, will never let you down, will always, is always dependable. We have to get the lens correct. He is our father. And do you know, God is your father, that as a child of God, you have direct access to carry all of your anxieties and your cares over to Him. You don't have to wait till Sunday. You don't have to depend on us as pastors. As much as I, I love my job, as much as I love to be your pastor, and I thank you for the video and the words that, that, that were shared, as much as I, I want to continue to have this job of preaching God's Word to you, you, you don't have to be dependent upon us to get to God. You don't have to come to me and say, and say, and say Pastor Ben, can you, can you go to God in prayer for me? Can you, can you petition God for me? I, I, I petition God for you every day of the week when I pray for our church. But, but you don't need me to petition God. You have direct access to God. You don't have to come into a confessional booth with me. And so I petition God for you. I'm not a mediator. I'm not a mediator. 
Pastors are not mediators between God and man. There's only one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ, Jesus. And through His flesh, through His work on the cross, He has made access. And this is what Jesus is getting at with His disciples. They, again, they don't get it. We have the privilege of sitting on the other side of it. So we're like, uh, yeah, clearly this is what it means. Well, we take it for granted. We take it for granted. We have direct access. Direct access. So this to me is the first anchor for the soul when, tough, when life gets hard and when we have tests and challenges and the tests that these disciples are about to face are very severe. They're going to want to flee and they are going to flee. They're going to want to, they're, they're going to, want to abandon and, and, and they do because the test is hot and, and heavy and it's difficult. And in our lives, I think we enter seasons like that and we need to be reminded that we can go to our Father. We have direct access. First anchor of our soul is that the Father loves us. Secondly, here's the next anchor. The Son knows you. The Father loves you and the Son knows you. Look back to the text. The Son knows you. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly. And they still didn't get it. But they thought, you know, they, thought they were getting it, right? Now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things. Do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. These disciples are making some bold, de- bold declarations, weren't they? They're like, oh, we get it now. We understand now. The Father loves us. We get it. But they didn't get it yet, did they? They didn't get it yet. And we see why they didn't get it. Jesus, we're going to talk about that later on in the message. We, we, we will see that they really did not get it yet. But they think that they've got it. But you know what I think about these disciples? They're like us. They were sincere. They were genuine disciples. They were sincere in their declaration. They said, this is why we believe you and that you came from God. This is why we believe in you because you speak plainly and we know that you speak for God and you know all things. That's why we believe in you. They were sincere in their declarations. Do you remember when Jesus was asking these disciples before this conversation? He said, so who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples said, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. Jesus said, no, okay, no, that's all good. It's, it's good, that, you know, you're getting the pulse of the crowd. But the real question you have, every one of us has to ask, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And what did Peter say? Matthew 16, uh, 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was bold. It's similar to this bold declaration that the disciples are making in this final discourse. They're saying, we believe you're finally speaking plainly, and now we believe that you know all things, that you've got access to the Father, and, and we're with you, Jesus. We're with you, Jesus. We believe you are the Christ. We believe you are the Son of the living God. Bold declaration. We believe it. Now notice what Jesus says in response to that bold, de- bold declaration. Notice what he says. Look at verse 31 of our text, John 16. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? And, 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 and you can see this in a couple different ways, but I think the way to see this question from Jesus is they're making a bold declaration that they now believe in him. Jesus is questioning that belief. I think the question was said like this, do you now believe? Do you? Do you believe? Do you really believe? Do you now believe? Jesus is seemingly questioning their belief. Do you? Why is Jesus questioning their belief? 
I think the reason Jesus is questioning their belief is back to what we learned in John chapter 2. Do you remember? Right before Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, look at John 2, 25. Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So these disciples are making a bold declaration that they now believe in Jesus. Jesus turns and looks at them and says, do you believe? Do you now believe? Do you? Why do I know it's a questioning? It's, it's a questioning of the genuineness of their belief. Why do I know that? Well, look, look what he says next. He says, he says, do you not believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each of you to his own home, and will leave me alone. What's Jesus saying here? Oh, it's so profound. He's saying, listen, do you believe? I know you're weak. I know you're frail. I know you're not what you think you are. You remember Jesus talked to Peter and said, when Peter made his bold declaration, I'm willing to die for you, Jesus. All these other ones, they may leave you and abandon you, but I will go to death for you. And, and, and Jesus said, oh, Simon, Simon, Satan's desired to have you to sift you like wheat. And before the rooster crows, you will deny that you even knew me. You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. I think this is the same type of thing Jesus is saying. He's looking at them. He's saying, do do you believe? Listen, I know. I know who you are. I know your weakness. The Father loves you, but I know you. I know you. You're going to have direct access to the Father because of what I'm going to do on the cross. And you think you have it all together. and You understand. You've connected all the dots, but I know you. I know that you're weak. I know that you're frail. I know that you flee and that you will scatter. He knew his disciples were runners. Any other runners here today? I saw Pastor Scott in his picture. He's a runner. I'm not a runner, but I'm a runner. I'm not a runner, but I'm a runner. I, I run. I run. I flee. I deny. Right? I'm weak. He knows. Listen, I, I thought about the different ways in which the disciples failed the Lord after he, tell, after he questions their belief. They say, we believe in you. He says, do you now believe? I thought three areas in which they failed the Lord. They're sleepers, they're fleers, and they're deniers. Sleeping, fleeing, denying. Look at the sleeping. After this conversation, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Look at what it says, Mark 14. He took him with him, Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said, Simon, Peter, Peter, are, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? He's a sleeper. We're sleepers. Do you, do you sleep on the Lord like I do too? Are you weak like me? Are you weak like Peter? He knew them. He knew that they were sleepers. He knew that they were sleepers, that they were passive, that they couldn't stay awake, that, that they could not linger with him. He knew they were frail. They're, they're, they're sleepers and then they're fleers. Look at Mark 14. This is what Jesus prophesied. They said, we believe in you. Now we believe in you. He says, do you believe that hour is coming? Actually, it's now. It's on the precipice, and you're all going to scatter. Here's the fulfillment of that prophecy, Mark 14. Day after day, I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. They all fled. Everyone, the, the disciples that are in this room and some that were peripheral disciples, one of them even ran away naked. They, they, they all fled. They all abandoned sleepers and fleers and then what? Deniers. 
Peter denied. Look at Mark 14. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I, never, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Are you serious, Peter? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, flesh and blood's not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. I don't know what you're talking about about this Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter was in that group in the final upper room discourse, and, and he was with the group that all agreed, we now believe in you. And Peter's saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I either know nor understand what you mean. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. Other, the gospel accounts say he denied it with a curse. Sleeping, fleeing and denying disciples, and Jesus knew it. He knew it. He told them it would happen. He told them it would happen, and I think this is so profound for us to consider as disciples today. We are all sleepers, fleers, and deniers. We are often not what we think we are. We are often not what we want to be. Apostle Paul said, Apostle Paul said, the things that I, I don't want to do, I find myself doing the things that I, I want to do, I, I, I don't do. There's that inner battle between the spirit, the new spirit man that's new in Christ and our remaining flesh, that battle over sin and temptation, that battle to despair versus walk in faith. We're weak, we sleep, we flee, we deny. You know, the good news of the gospel is Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our our weaknesses, He knows. This is an anchor for our soul in a time of testing that the Father loves us, but Jesus knows us. He knows us. His, our weaknesses don't scare Him. He knows us. There's only been one sinless man who walked the earth. You know that, right? only been one sinless man that walked the earth. There's only been one man who walked this earth who had no weaknesses. There's only been one man who never slept because of passivity. There's only been one man who never ran from confrontation and sinful cowardice. There's only been one man who walked this earth who never denied his master. Only one man. It reminds me, I think about our weaknesses and our sins and our frailty. I think about Jesus with the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. The Pharisees bring her to the feet of Jesus and these Pharisees believed because they understood the law, they understood the word, and they had a lot of theological understanding and knowledge. They thought that they could come and sit in judgment over, over this woman. And Jesus begins to write in the sand. I don't know what he wrote, but he looks up at them after he wrote and he says, you without sin cast the first stone. You who's not a sleeper, a fleer, or a denier. You who doesn't have weaknesses. You who don't sin. Go ahead. Cast the stone. Yes, the law says stone her because she committed adultery. But if you have no sin, there's only one person who has the right to judge this woman, and it is the one who has no sin. But I thought, I thought about 1 John 1 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Sleepers, fleers, deniers, good intentioned but weak, wanting badly to please their master but unable to not be human. I, 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 that's what I see. 
They're good intention, these disciples in John 16. They, they, they want to please their master, but they, they can't help themselves but be human. They can't help themselves but be weak, and Jesus knows it. You know, I, I thought about a young child who, who wants to please their parent. How many, how many of you have little children? Little children, they constantly, what, what do they say? Dad, watch. Mom, watch. Let me do this. Let me do this. Can I, can I do the mixing bowl? Can I do that? Can I, can I get this on the top shelf? Can I drive? Can I, right? And, 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 you're, and, and they want to please you. They, they want that approval constantly. But, but the issue with the child is they can't help but be a child. They can't help but have bad balance at the table with the sweet tea and, and spill it. They can't help but be weak and not mature yet and not fully sanctified yet. You, you tracking with me. This is us. This is who we are. We are sleepers. We are deniers. We are fleers. We often wonder. We often run. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 tells us this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he, lest he fall. Sleepers, fleers, deniers. You know, sleepers, fleers, and deniers, they weep bitterly, don't they? Sleepers, fleers, and deniers weep bitterly. Peter slept on the Lord. He fled from the Lord, and he denied the Lord. And look what he did, Luke 22. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter after his third denial. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He went out and wept bitterly. The Father loves us. Jesus knows us. He knows our weakness and our failures. And He loves us still. Aren't you glad He loves us still? He loves us still. In spite of it. Because He knows we're not there yet. He knows we have a ways to go. I, I, I love a song. It's written by John Mark Cole. It's titled, Still. It's titled, Still. Listen to the words. Run and run and run is all I've ever done. But still your grace is right beside me. Fight and fight and fight. Oh God, you know I've tried, but I can't tide these demons over. Run and run and run. You pursue in love. You won't lose me when I wander. Fight and fight and fight. You gave your son to die for a debt I could never pay. You threw my sin in the sea. My vices sunk in your mercy deep. You carried my cross on Calvary. You took the nails that were meant for me. With every breath, you bore the pain of all my guilt and all my shame. You paid my price on that day. You gave your life and took my grave. I don't see how you could love me still. I don't see how you could love me still. So where? Where do we rest our hearts in times of testing? The Father loves you. The Son knows you. Jesus knows you. And while you're weeping over your sin, Christ is working. We talked about last week, while we are mourning and grieving and we're struggling, Christ is at work. Well, while we're weeping over our sin, Christ is at work. While, these, while Peter is weeping, Christ is working to pay the price for his denial. While he is Weeping over his sin, Christ is working to pay the price for that sin. The Father loves you. Jesus knows you. What's the third anchor? You will overcome because Christ has overcome. Look back to the text. You will overcome because Christ has overcome. 
You have direct access to the Father. Jesus knows you. He knows your weaknesses, but he's done, he's done something about it. You will overcome because Christ has overcome. Look back. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So Jesus makes it as plain as he can be. He said, I've said these things to you for a specific reason. It's all the things we've gone through in John 14, 15, and 16. He said, I've said these things to you so that this will happen. So that what will happen? So that in me you may have peace. Isn't that good? He said, I've said all this to you. All the things you don't really know yet, all the things you don't understand, and you will one day. The hour's going to come when the aha moment to the power of the Spirit will be there. But I've said all these things so that in me you may have peace. You know, in Christ is the only place that true peace can be found. Peace with God and peace for the heart. The word peace there is the word shalom. Shalom, the shalom of God, the the peace of God. This word shalom means completeness, soundness, well-being. That's peace. Is that not peace? Completeness, soundness, and well-being. Being. Have you had peace before? Have you had the opposite of peace where you don't feel complete, you don't feel sound, and you don't have well-being? But the peace of God, the shalom of God, the peace of God brings completeness, soundness, wholeness, well-being. You're at peace with God and you're at peace in your heart. And Jesus is saying, I've said these things so that in me you may have completeness, soundness, and well-being. It reminds me of the Aaronic blessing. You know the blessing of Aaron, the prayer of the priest Aaron, the Aaronic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. It says this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. One commentary says it like this, because of the world's chaos through man's sin and because peace comes only as God's gift, the messianic hope, what we see in number six, the messianic hope was of an age of peace and the New Testament shows the fulfillment of this hope is Christ. In Christ, peace has come. In Christ, peace has come. The blessing of peace has its fulfillment in Christ. Now next, Jesus says, he said, I've said these things to you so that in me you have peace. But notice what he says next. In this world, you have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So, so Jesus makes two promises here in this one verse here in, in our text. He makes two promises, one we like, one we don't like. And he says, in this world, you have tribulation. We don't like that promise. And tribulation means trouble, distress, oppression, affliction, physical, mental, social tribulation, Jesus promises in this life, you'll have tribulation. He's trying to prepare his disciples right here. He's trying to tell them, you're going to have trouble. It's coming. And within a a couple of hours, it's going to come. Whenever the soldiers and, and Judas walk up, trouble and tribulation and distress and fear are on their way. In this broken, sin cursed world, we will experience the results of the fractures that make this world broken. And we'll experience it too. Pressure, sin, temptation, anxiety, persecution, sickness, and death. But notice what Jesus says next. What does he say? Take heart. 
Take heart. What, what does take heart mean? It means cheer up. Cheer up. Some of you, when I, when I watch you while I'm preaching, I, I want to say that to you. Cheer up. It's okay. I'm almost done. <laughs> We're almost done. Cheer up. Wake up. Lift up the eyelids. Almost done. Cheer up. Cheer up. Take heart. Cheer up. A, 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 another way to look at it, he's saying, be courageous. Be courageous. Take heart. Cheer up. Why? I've overcome the world. I've overcome it. I'm telling you beforehand it's coming, Jesus is saying, but you can be happy, you can be courageous because I've already, I'm taking care of it. I've taken care of it. Don't shrink back, but move forward. Why? Because I've overcome the world. The hordes of hell, the devil and his demons are licking their chops and they're ready to pounce. But Jesus is saying in advance of his greatest trial and his greatest testing, the battle is already won, my brothers. It's already won. Satan's ready, yeah, amen. The battle is already won. Satan and his demons, they thought they had the victory, did they not? Oh, but God was working his plan. Revelation 13 says that Christ was crucified before the foundations of the world. Long before Jesus was ever born of a virgin in the manger, before the foundations of the world, Christ was slain. In the mind of God, his eternal plan of redemption. It reminds me of Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Final victory. Overcome means military conquest, to prevail, to conquer, total victory, complete conquest, complete conquest. Overcomers, brothers, take heart. Be of good cheer. Be courageous because you're overcomers because I'm going to overcome in your place. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 8, 37, know in all these things, all this brokenness, all this pain, all this temptation, all these tests, all these trials, know in, in all these things, we are what? More than conquerors through Him who loved us. More than conquerors. What does it mean? I've, I've, I've often wondered, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? I'm, I'm really almost done. I, got, I don't know if y'all know, I got a countdown every Sunday. It says three minutes and nine seconds. I'm going to go a little bit over. Three minutes and nine seconds left. How many of you know, have you thought, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? How many of you would be good with just being a conqueror? Hey, it's great. LSU would have loved to just be a conqueror today. But Ole Miss was more than a conqueror, right? So here, here's, John Piper says it great right here. Listen, a conqueror defeats his enemy like Ole Miss defeated LSU. That's what Piper said. But, but one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy. One who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. But that's good. A person who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. Or J.D. Greer says it a little different. He says, the who of your salvation is greater than the who of your opposition, and God transforms the opposition into the servants of his purpose. That's what it means to be more than a conqueror. All oh, the trials are going to come. The trials are going to come. The difficulties are going to come. The tests are going to come. Brothers, the tests are coming. But, but, but be 
Be cheerful. Be encouraged. Be courageous. I've overcome them all. I'm headed to overcome them all. I have overcome them all. Complete and total victory. And for us today, that is what we can walk in as believers in Jesus Christ. He's already overcome them. God not only delivers us from our suffering, listen, but he also makes our pain and suffering serve his purposes. Amen. Take heart. You know, Michael Jordan was the goat, was he not? You think Michael Jordan was the goat? I could hear your arguments about LeBron James. LeBron, I wham wham. That's what I think about LeBron. He just cries all the time. I lost all respect for him whenever they carried him off the court when they were playing the San Antonio Spurs. They carried him off the court because of cramps. Who, what grown man lets other six foot eight grown men let somebody else carry you off the court because of cramps? I just, Jordan was the goat. He scored 55 points, 50 plus points with the flu in the finals. It's the goat, right? He won three titles in a row. Three titles in a row, quit for two years. The Houston Rockets thought they were something. And then Jordan came back and showed you, no, that was just an asterisk for two years in a row because he won three more right after. He's the GOAT. But Michael Jordan couldn't have done it on his own. He needed Pippen and Rodman and Paxson and who else? Go through the list, right? He needed all of them. You know, Jesus' sidekicks, what did they do? They left him. Peter left him. John left him. Andrew left him. Matthew left him. But you know what? Jesus didn't need him. He was, he's the goat, right? And Jesus didn't need him because he was about to fulfill something that they could never do. He alone could do it. He did the work, and, and, and he uh, was the only one who could do it. He's the only one who could pay the price for sin. He did the work, and they enjoyed the spoils of his victory. They enjoyed the spoils of his victory. So my question to you as we conclude is this. Is there anything in our life that is too hard for our God? your answer is yes, you weren't listening for the last 45 minutes. Is there anything in our life that is too hard for God? Any failure, any fleeing and running and sleeping and denying? Is there anything in our life that we've done past, present, or do in the future that is too hard for our God? Any trial, any temptation, any fear, any anxiety, is there anything that this broken world can throw at us that our God cannot handle? Answer's no. So where do we rest our hearts in times of testing and trial? What have we seen? I think we've seen that we rest in the knowledge that the Father loves us, that we have direct access to the Father because of Christ. The Son knows us, that we are weak and flawed, and Jesus knows it, but He's done something about it. Because Christ is the goat, He accomplished what we could never accomplish. Because He's overcome, we are overcomers. In Him, we have peace. The shalom of God belongs to us in Christ. Amen? The shalom of God belongs to us through Christ. So we started with last words. Leonardo da Vinci. Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra, I'm losing, I'm losing. Now, we're not going to end with losing words, right? What about Peter? What were Peter's last words? You know, Peter, the 
the sleeper, the fleer, the denier. What were his last words? We don't really know for sure. We know history tells us he was hung upside down for the sake of Christ on the cross and upside down on a cross. But his last words that we have are his written words. Second Peter were the last written words of the Apostle Peter who, who slept on Christ, ran from Christ, and denied Christ. What were his last words? Listen to this, so good. Second Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. I love it. I don't know if you got it. Did you get it? You know, if there's one thing that Peter would want us to grow in, what do you think it would be? But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come to know His grace as I have known His grace. Come to know that His grace conquers all. Come to know that, that we have direct access to the Father. Come to know that Jesus knows your weaknesses and He has conquered them through His, through his, through his substitutionary work on the cross. Come to know the grace that belongs to you in Christ. The grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.